Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, so we're heading on down into the vault to bring you part three of our series on The Goat and its devilish implications. This was originally published on October 25th, 2022. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are back with part three of our series on the goat and the devil, where we are exploring reasons for the, some would say, unfair association in especially Christian cultures between the ordinary domestic goat, a wonderful animal, and the demonic realm of sin and flames. Now, In previous episodes, we've talked about the basic biology of the goat as a browsing bovid that uh, was once adapted to harsher environments like mountains and forests, but sometime many thousands of years ago was domesticated by the humans who used to hunt it. We talked about uh, mythical inspirations for later goat man devils, uh, possibly lying in the figure of the Greek god Pan and in the satyrs and fauns that bore his image. Uh, We talked about goat reproduction and goat voices, how it's possible that goats could be interpreted as sinful by judgmental human eyes because because of the he-goat's reputation for being very enthusiastic about mating, and the idea that it's possible people have seen goats as uncanny because sometimes some goats, when they kind of moan and scream, they sound freakishly human. Uh, In the second episode, we talked about the role of goats in the Hebrew Bible, where they could be associated with demonic forces because of the ritual of the Day of Atonement, where it is said that one goat is uh, sent off into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people off for Azazel, and that, that name is sometimes interpreted as some kind of demonic power. 
We also talked about goats in the Christian New Testament, where Jesus is said to have given apocalyptic preaching that when the Son of Man comes to bring the end of the age, he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And what's the image used there? It's as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The goats are the bad ones. And finally, we also talked about goat lore from around the world to point out that the association between goats and evil is by no means universal. There are some very interesting counterexamples in Chinese mythology, in uh, Basque mythology, with the, this figure of the, the black billy goat de- deity who protects livestock and so forth. So it's been a wild ride so far, a wild <laughs> goat ride. But to kick things off today, I wanted to come back to our discussion about the particular uh, features of goat biology that people of centuries past might possibly have interpreted as devilish or sinful in one way, uh, in some in one way or another. And uh, the example I wanted to look at here is goat eyes. Mm-hmm. One might argue that you haven't really been stared at until you've been stared at by a goat. And part of the reason for that is when you're being stared at by a goat, you're not quite sure if you're being stared at by a goat. That's right. It comes down to the, uh, the, the the inhuman shape of the goat pupils. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and before I get there, I want to say that the goat's stare does not have to be imbued with any kind of menace. I came across a, a very sweet, whimsical little poem I wanted to read a bit from. This is by the, the British-Canadian poet Robert Service. Uh, who wrote a poem called The Goat and I, and uh, it goes, Each sunny day upon my way, a goat I pass. He has a beard of silver gray and a bell of brass. And all the while I am in sight, he seems to muse and stares at me with all his might and chews and chews. Upon the hill so timey sweet with joy of spring, he hails me with a tiny bleat of welcoming. Though half the globe is drenched with blood and cities flare, contentedly he chews the cud and does not care. O gentle friend, I know not what your age may be, but of my years I'd give the lot yet left to me to chew a thistle and not choke, but bright of eye gaze at the old world-weary bloke who hobbles by." This is great. I love how this drives home like an overall interpretation of goat physiology that uh, that I think we can often fall into. And that is of the goat as uh, the old goat. Like there is mm. even a, if a goat, you, you do see some goats that look you know very virile and young in a, in a goatish fashion. But oftentimes uh, you'll encounter goats who do kind of hobble about there. They have all these likenesses that we attribute to uh, elderly human individuals. Uh, you know, you'll have the beard and so forth. Uh, but, but yeah, this is a neat little poem summing up the, um, uh, the independent uh, and relatable spirit of the goat. Oh, I also, I left off a final stanza where essentially the, fi- the last stanza is just like, why am I writing a poem about a goat? <laughs> it's, it's not great. Um, so, but, but yeah, anyway, the, the gaze of the goat has often been observed to have a strange character in one way or another. Sometimes it's, it's, more like what uh, Service is saying here, almost narcotically placid and and unmoved. And yet other times people notice that the, the gaze of the goat is kind of thrillingly alien because unlike with a dog or a cat, it can be hard to tell if a goat is actually looking at you, or at least for me it can. Despite the efforts of Robert Service, the, the eye of the goat has often been characterized as creepy, 
And I think there could be a couple of reasons for that. It might be because it's a, a bit harder to tell where the goat is focusing than it is with some other kind of animals like our predatory companion animals. Um, or maybe it's just because the eye of a goat sort of looks weird. It looks unusual if you're not used to it. Because instead of a round pupil, as you alluded to earlier, Rob, the goat has a horizontal pupil sometimes described as rectangular in shape. Uh, I think sometimes kind of described as like elongated capsule shape. So it's like a rectangle with kind of rounded edges. Uh, I've also found some photos where it looks like a horizontal capital I with a hint of those cross beams or slight bulges at the ends of the rectangle. And the question is, why do goat pupils look that way? Well, Funny enough, we actually did an episode just a while back which contained a segment about the evolutionary reasoning behind different pupil shapes in the animal kingdom. The episode was the three-pupil die, and uh, I think the study we talked about in that show is still a good one to inform us on the question I've just raised. So to, to bring up the same uh, paper again, this was by Martin S. Banks et al., published in the journal Science Advances in 2015, and it's called Why Do Animal Eyes Have Pupils of Different Shapes? Basic conclusion is that an animal's pupil shape is usually determined by what its ecological niche is, what its role in the food chain is. So animals like humans, tigers, and wolves have round pupils. Round pupils appear to be common, uh, a common shape for active hunters who chase down their prey. Meanwhile, predators that are lower to the ground or hunt by way of ambush, so a predator that might lie in wait and then pounce suddenly on a prey animal, these tend to have vertical pupils, vertically oriented slit pupils. And the vertical slits seem to be adaptive for low-down ambush predators because they're helpful in using tricks called stereopsis and defocus blur to very precisely judge the distance needed for a single uh, exact medium-range pounce. But herbivores, prey animals, are more likely to have horizontal pupils, like the goat. Uh, to quote from the study, Horizontally elongated pupils create sharp images of horizontal contours ahead and behind, creating a horizontally panoramic view that facilitates detection of predators from various directions and forward locomotion across uneven terrain. So, these horizontal pupils are good for scanning the whole panorama of the environment, seeing at all angles uh, all, all the time, to watch out for any approaching predators. Which might be one of the reasons you can get that creepy feeling, where you can't tell if the goat is actually looking at you. The goat is sort of designed by nature to be looking everywhere, rather than to be looking at you. But I also thought it's an interesting note about the forward locomotion across uneven terrain, uh, given the, the evolutionary history of uh, goats occupying mountains and craggy landscapes. Mm. Though again, less craggy creatures like horses also have horizontal pupils. So that made me wonder about the question, why do we tend to notice the horizontal orientation of goat pupils more than we notice it in horses and other herbivores? I, I think this must be a common thing. It's at least true for me. And so I was looking into this, uh, and I want to make two non-expert observations just by looking at a lot of photos on Google. One is that the horse pupil 
seems uh, less noticeably elongated in the horizontal dimension than the goat pupil. So they're both horizontal, but the, the horse pupil seems a little bit shorter usually, or the goat one often looks visibly stretched out. Second, and I think this might be even more important, there seems to be on average a stronger color contrast within the goat's eye. If you just look at a bunch of pictures of the, the eyes of horses and the eyes of goats, it seems goats on average have lighter colored irises, which really makes the pupil pop. It makes the pupil mm -hmm. stand out, uh, which makes it look more noticeably alien, at least to me. Interesting. I remember in that episode on the three pupil eye, we talked about pupil changes in the shape of the pupil with predators tended to vary as well depending on height yeah yeah that's right but so, but, uh, but i don't remember any such distinction being made in the, in the materials we were looking at then regarding uh, herbivores like if, if, uh, if uh, goat versus cow versus horse etc yeah I, I don't recall any distinction like that either but definitely there was a change in height uh, in in predators, because again, the taller predators have round pupils and the shorter predators have vertical slit pupils. Uh, and so part of that has to do with uh, a difference in hunting strategy, like chasing versus ambushing. But part of it has to do also with just, uh, I think, managing the angles at which you would be observing your prey. Now, this instantly makes me think uh, of something that I guess we got into a little bit in the three people die is what sort of eyes do we expect uh, knowing all of this? of divine beings and divine emissaries. Mm. Uh, certainly in the like Irish and, uh, and some Chinese traditions that we discussed in that episode, we talked about the idea of someone with three pupils or three irises being uh, in some way enlightened and having superior vision and perhaps wisdom as well. Uh, and, but, uh, but taking all that we've discussed here into the scenario, it's like, okay, if we have some sort of God or godlike being or anti-God taking on the, the head and eyes of a goat, well, in a way, it's, it seems more fitting. It's like uh, it's, this is a being that can look in many directions at once and doesn't need to focus its attention uh, and maybe doesn't focus its attention all that much. And hey, being a God, maybe you don't want its attention focused too heavily. Well, also, though, thinking about the predator-prey distinction, I mean, shouldn't the horizontal pupils make it less dangerous? Like, wouldn't yeah. round pupils really be the most dangerous? Yeah, but then I get, it comes down to the, the human scenario, right? We want, to, we want to connect with the human in the superhuman, and therefore we want the, them to have pupils. Though I guess we see, especially in modern depictions, you know, we love to like black out the eyes of inhuman beings, uh, you know, often with those uh, really cool contact lenses. So we'll have various, you know, there's so many treatments of this where various fallen angels and so forth will have all black eyes or maybe all white eyes. And that mm. tends to denote some sort of strangeness of vision as well. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Like sometimes otherworldly beings are just depicted as having eyes like that. Sometimes their eyes change into all white or all black or something when they are exercising a type of second sight. When it sometimes works quite well, though sometimes you're kind of, I think you're kind of inconveniencing your actors <laughs> by taking yeah. away their eyes or taking away one of their tools. Well, maybe we should look at a little bit more goat mythology and goat symbolism in history. I think if we're trying to figure out why, especially uh, a lot of, say, continental European Christian cultures made an association between the devil and goats, I think we must talk about the figure known as Baphomet. Yeah, and this is this is a fascinating but also kind of convoluted uh, situation because it involves multiple different cultures 
either appropriating or interpreting or misinterpreting or outright slandering something that other culture, that previous cultures or, um, or, or different cultures believed in or believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the end result is this, um, this strange satanic goat creature that you're more likely to encounter now uh, in a TV show or on a heavy metal t-shirt, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I covered some of this in a Monster Fact episode about the Goat of Mendes that came about uh, shortly after we recorded a Weird House Cinema episode on the film The Devil Rides Out, which prominently features uh, this satanic goat man appearing at a black mass. And so this this entity, uh, Baphomet or the Goat of Mendes, is essentially a Western occultist distortion of a Greek interpretation of the god uh, of Egypt, uh, the Egyptian god known as Benebjadet, uh, that was worshipped in Mendes, which is the Greek name for an ancient Egyptian city named uh, Jadet, also known today as Tel El Ruba. Fifth century Greek historian Herodotus wrote of this god and his practices and made veiled references to sexual aspects of the worship and also compared the entity to Pan, uh, of course, from from Western traditions. So al- already, I know this this sounds like some sort of a, you can imagine like the different pins on a board with the different bits of string, colored string, <laughs> showing uh-huh. you where all this is going across a map of, uh, of Europe and North Africa. Uh, so here's a quote from, from Herodotus uh, via S. Birch's translation. Quote, now the reason why those of the Egyptians whom I have mentioned do not sacrifice goats, female or male, is this. The Mendicians count Pan to be one of the eight gods. Now these eight gods, they say, came into being before the twelve gods. And the painters and image makers represent in painting and in sculpture the figure of Pan, just as the Hellenes do, with goat's face and legs, not supposing him to be really like this, but to resemble the other gods. The cause, however, why they represent him in this form, I prefer not to say. The Mendizians then reverence all goats, and the males more than the females, and the goat herds too have greater honor than other herdsmen. But of the goats, one especially is reverenced, and when he dies, there is great mourning in all the Mendizian district. And both the goat and pan are called in the Egyptian tongue, Mendes. Okay, so not knowing exactly what's going on here, I would wonder if Herodotus is seriously misinterpreting reports he has heard about Egyptian worship in light of Greek religion. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's there's clearly a lot going on. Like using Greek religion to try and understand what uh individuals in this region are worshiping, going, you know, there there's so many ways that the information here can become skewed. Uh we have this veiled um reference to, uh, I, I believe other critics have pointed out that he's, he's referencing a supposed bestiality uh, in worship uh, and so forth. So already we're engaging in, uh, in, in various levels of misinterpretation and perhaps slander. Now, as Geraldine Pinch explains in her excellent book, Egyptian Mythology, the word for ram, uh, ba, and the word for soul or manifestation sound much the same in Egyptian uh, to the ancient Egyptians. So they were often regarded as manifestations of other deities, such as Osiris. And Pinch writes, quote, the sexual aspect of the cult at Mendes made it particularly disliked by early Christians. Benebjadet's form as a ram or goat-headed man 
was reinterpreted as a devil figure who entered Western tradition as the horned king of the witches. A classic example of literal demonization, taking mm-hmm. a god in, in another mythology, in this case one having the head of a, of a sheep or a goat, and saying that, well, actually this is just a demon in our mythology. Right, right. Uh, but of course, it gets more complicated than that. There are all these other additional threads going on here. Because as for the, the actual name, Goat of Mendes, this is the name given by French writer uh, Eliphius Levi in the 19th century, most likely referencing the writings of Herodotus. Uh, the most well-known image of this particular monstrous humanoid is in the 1856 edition of Levi's book, Dogma and Ritual of High Magic. And as with any many examples of divine and occult imagery, the image of Baphomet here is, uh, or the Goat of Mendes, is highly symbolic. And it's been incorporated into various occult traditions, subcultures, new religious movements, and so forth. I think everyone's probably seen this. This is the like a, a goat uh, being with the, the upper body of sometimes a female, but sometimes like half the chest is female, half is male. They're like black angelic wings, the goat head, the pentagram on the forehead, uh, a middle horn that is like a torch, uh, uh, various other symbols uh, going on in the image. It's loaded with stuff to look at. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as as far as images of the divine or the demonic, it's a pretty great one. There's lots to focus on, lots to try and figure out. And at the very least, you know, as we've discussed many times before, the basic symbolism involved here of combining beast with man or beast with woman, etc., like it instantly starts forming patterns in the mind. You can't look at it and not have some sort of reaction. Oh, I don't know if I've noticed this before, but at least in uh, Levi's depiction, it incorporates a a symbol that is like the caduceus or like the rod of Asclepius. It has the, mm-hmm. the rod and the snakes intertwined around it. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as for the name uh, Baphomet here... Uh, this gets us into something that we've we've touched on a few times in the on the show before. Uh, never devoted like full episode to it, but it, it involves the Templars, the the poor knights of Christ in the Temple of Solomon. So j- just to to get the basics out here uh, again, this was a religious military order of the Catholic Church during the Crusades, uh, which ran uh, about roughly 1095 through 1291 CE. Uh, they were uh, this organization was intended to serve. Uh, as a as a as a way to protect pilgrims on their way to the holy lands but a sort of power creep occurred uh, they were given free reign to move across borders they were made exempt from taxes and ended up playing key military roles in various battles of the crusades and even the non-warriors became important managing the movement of funds across vast distances uh, that were involved in the crusades and setting up a kind of proto banking system They became powerful, and so they made powerful enemies. And as the Crusades failed, the Templars were blamed. And finally, Philip IV of France, with the aid of Pope Clement V, who was then based in France, um, they suppressed the order and falsely accused them, or generally, I think most sources and historians agree that these are false or trumped-up charges of blasphemy and heresy, saying that, among other things, they worshipped a severed head called Baphomet. Uh, There's a whole litany of charges against them. Some of them were burned at the stake, I think 56 in total, uh, and that included Grandmaster Jacques de Molay, and others, uh, other members of the order were absorbed into different militaries and so forth. 
Now, the name Baphomet here is generally understood to be a French corruption of the name Muhammad. Uh, the, the monstrous Templar god Baphomet is therefore a product of trumped-up charges that the Templars had converted to the Islamic faith of their enemies, and the French and papal accusers invoked this fanciful and grotesque degradation of Islam to make their case. Because to be clear, nowhere in Islamic traditions do you find a creature like this. So it's essentially the monster at the heart of a xenophobic conspiracy theory uh, created to slander one's political enemies in the Middle Ages. Yes, pretty much. This and there's a lot more to the to, to to all of this as well. And certainly when you get into writings about the Templars, there's there are added theories, some perhaps worth talking about, some worth skipping over unless you're engaging in just like pure entertainment, I suppose. But uh but yeah, this seems to be the the most straightforward explanation. And it is kind of interesting how in this, you have something that is put together as a corruption, as a slander, uh and over time, it kind of takes on life of its own. It becomes used as a symbol of liberation. Uh, it becomes used as a symbol of, um, of rebellion against organized religion. It becomes used as a, a part of new religious movements even. So uh, it's always fascinating, the, the life of symbols and the life of ideas like this. Well, speaking of rebellion there is one more biological feature of goats that i wanted to talk about uh if, if you're ready rob are, are you ready to get into goat intelligence let's do it i think this one is interesting because while i don't think this is a primary reason that uh that goats would be identified with devils or with the legions of hell I do, I do think there is some interesting resonances here, and we can come back to that. But basically, I was just thinking, what is more readily identified with evil than intelligence, right? Because intelligence is often associated with a tendency toward rebellion or a tendency maybe to think a little too critically about what somebody is telling you to do. And while goats are not generally a species known for how smart they are, there's some evidence that, at least in some ways, they might be more clever than we give them credit for, but that it's also a kind of intelligence that is sort of alien to human primate intelligence. Mm. So I want to look at a paper by uh, Elodie F. Briefer et al., published in Frontiers in Zoology, called Goats Excel at Learning and Remembering a Highly Novel Cognitive Task, published in 2014. To explain the context of what the authors were trying to figure out here, they begin by highlighting a couple of competing frameworks for explaining the evolution of higher intelligence. One you might call the social intelligence hypothesis, and the other you might call the ecological competence hypothesis. The social hypothesis argues that the evolution of intelligence and higher cognition is primarily for managing relationships between individuals within a social species. So there are obvious, huge survival benefits to being social and working together. And I think uh, there's a very good case to be made that that is what primarily explains the success of humans as a species of animal. But there are also a lot of unique problems that arise when animals congregate in social groups and perform or try to perform any cooperative behaviors. The social hypothesis would say that animals need intelligence in order to get as many benefits as possible 
from social cooperation and to negate the possible downsides of social cooperation. So to do things like maintain group cohesion and reduce conflict between group members. Meanwhile, uh, the competing ecological competence hypothesis would say that the evolution of intelligence is mainly for uh, increasing survival advantage when faced with the problems posed by the environment. And in a sense, the world is a puzzle, and the better you are at solving that puzzle, the more likely you are to survive. So examples would be finding ways to extract difficult-to-access nutrition during foraging, remembering the locations of important resources and threats, and things like that. And these views would tend to also have implications for the type of learning that we see in different animals, because creatures with social intelligence tend to be capable of social learning. This is a very important concept. Social learning is the ability to learn not only by doing, but to learn by watching others. So when you learn how to do a task by observing someone else doing it, that's social learning, and it's a very important ability that is arguably what makes it possible for human beings to have technology, civilization, and culture. Animals with the largest brains and the most advanced cognition tend to usually be social animals, and the authors write that, quote, the prevalent view today is that intelligent species should excel at social learning. But the authors argue that a lot of this research is focused on primates, which we already know are very smart. They have relatively large brains, and we already know they're very social. But what would happen if we studied this on uh, this question on relatively smaller brained mammals? What if we test this theory on the goat? <laughs> Goats have a few interesting characteristics. They not only have relatively smaller brains than primates, uh, also the domestication process itself tends to lead to a decrease in brain size when compared to wild ancestors. I mean, domestic animals have uh, fewer puzzles to solve, let's say, uh, and this could also affect cognition. And the authors write, quote, goats possess several features commonly associated with advanced cognition, such as successful colonization of new environments and complex fission-fusion societies. To briefly explain both of those, uh, I guess colonization of new environments is fairly self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, goats um, they have a pretty uh, adventurous relationship with the natural world, and they can they can spread into areas where it's harder for other animals to survive, but they thrive there. So they're yes. they're getting something out of the environment that some other animals can't quite get. But the other thing that's interesting is the complex fission-fusion societies. This means animals that live together in groups, but they are able to uh, sort of alter those groups in a fluid way and then, and then come back together. So an example would be humans live in fission-fusion societies. We live in groups, but those groups separate off into subgroups. They separate and they come back together. The groups change sizes. Uh, people separate on their own and do different tasks and then rejoin. That's fission-fusion. So the authors here tested out goat intelligence and memory on what they call a food box cognitive challenge, pretty much a puzzle box with a special lever that a goat had to learn how to operate in order to access food. And there were different conditions in this experiment. Would it make a difference to a goat's ability to learn how to use this box if the goat were able to watch another goat opening the box successfully, aka social learning? 
And the authors uh, in, in their results section write, quote, The majority of trained goats, 9 out of 12, successfully learned the task quickly, on average within 12 trials. At intervals of up to 10 months, they solved the task within two minutes, indicating excellent long-term memory. The goats did not learn the task faster after observing a demonstrator than if they did not have that opportunity. This indicates that they learned through individual rather than social learning. So, goats pretty smart. They learn the task pretty well. They can solve the puzzle most of the time, and they're able to remember that solution pretty well in the long term. Ten months later, you give them another puzzle box, they get into it pretty fast. But the goats did not seem to benefit from watching the struggles of other goats at all. So they did not display signs of social learning. And I think that's kind of interesting because goats are to some degree social. They live in herds, but biologically they are not oriented to learn in a cooperative way. They, they can't learn, at least according to this finding, by watching other goats do the way we can. Hmm. And the authors say that this would provide some evidence that the evolution of goat cognition is driven more by ecological competence pressure than by social intelligence pressure. So they think it, you know, what's pushing goats to, uh, to be able to think more efficiently is probably more the stuff about trying to extract, solve puzzles in the environment. How do you extract the maximum amount of uh, foraging resources from this area? How do you remember where caches of food are? How do you remember where threats are and things like that, rather than using that intelligence to try to maintain relationships within the group like you might see in chimpanzees? Yeah, now that makes sense based on on my limited experience with, with goat mischief. It tends to be things like you're at a petting zoo and, oh, you have a, you have a map of the zoo sticking out of your pocket uh, somebody decides to sneak that out of your pocket and start eating it, um, you know. Or I, I've I've spoken. That's with, problem uh, solving. <laughs> yeah, it's problem solving. It's again curiosity, just pure curiosity. Is it food? I shall investigate. Um, yeah. I know other situations that have come up uh, the, the, from uh, some goat uh, farmers that I've I've spoken to in the past have been like the the goat wants to find out uh, how to get on top of something, and yeah. in doing that may find well find its way out of an enclosure. So that sort of thing. Right, so clever problem solving within the physical space, but less so within the the social arena. Mm -hmm. So one might be tempted to say that crafty antisocial goats cast long and sinister shadows. However, I wanted to put another weight on the scale, sort of on the other side of the scale. And this was a uh, study I was looking at by uh, Christian Nowroth et al., published in Biology Letters in 2016, called Goats Display Audience-Dependent Human-Directed Gazing Behavior in a Problem-Solving Task. And the background of this one is the observation that, okay, domestication, when you domesticate a wild animal, this clearly affects the animal's brain and its cognition. Uh, a domestic dog simply does not think and solve problems the same way its nearest wild relative would. Uh, you know, dog, dog thinking is way different than wolf thinking, but how much of this difference is a result of straight domestication and how much is the result of the fact that dogs are domesticated specifically as companions? Mm, yeah. And this, yeah, certainly we get into the whole scenario where we often talk about dogs and cats and other close domesticated animals as we talk about how they look at humans. What do they yeah. think humans are? And I know there, there are different interpretations, but I know that it's often said, well, like a cat thinks you may think that you are another cat. 
I've, I've heard, you know, they think you're another kitten or they think you're its mom, that sort of thing. Dogs, I believe, tend to look at, at their humans kind of like their dogs, right? Well, to some extent, I mean, you can tell that there is a uh, there's a very natural, inclusive kind of social relationship with dogs to humans. So they, they acclimatize easily to humans. Right. On, on the other hand, there seems to be a kind of special thing with humans, right? Where like you have these studies where you give a dog... A, a puzzle that it cannot solve. Like it can't get the, the treat out of the puzzle box. And is it going to look at the other dog in the room for help or look at the human for help? It's going to look at the human. Right. Right. And, and I don't have any studies to back this up, but I mean, this seems to be the case with cats as well. Like the cats uh, will come to the human. They'll use their special meow that, um, that is a way of communicating with the humans as if they are like the mama cat that will fix things. Yeah. But with the goat, yeah, where do we go with that? Because as we've, we've already established, like there's a different underlying social dynamic. Right. But what the authors here found, uh, just to read from their abstract, they say, quote, we investigated human directed behavior in an unsolvable problem task in a domestic but non-companion species, goats. Okay. So they're giving goats uh, sort of like a puzzle box that they can't solve. They're, there's clearly an outcome they want, but they can't achieve it on their own. It's not like they, you know, the lever that they could figure out with a few tries in the other mm. experiment. They, they can't win this game. So uh, the authors write, quote, during the test, goats experienced a forward facing or an away facing person. They gazed toward the forward facing person earlier and for longer and showed more gaze alterations and a lower latency until the first gaze alteration when the person was forward facing. Our results provide strong evidence for audience dependent human directed visual orienting behavior in the species that was domesticated primarily for production. And they also say their results, quote, show similarities with the referential and intentional communicative behavior exhibited by domestic companion animals, such as dogs and horses. This indicates that domestication has a much broader impact on heterospecific communication than previously believed. So the study is finding that even though goats were domesticated for production, for agriculture, meat, milk, uh, hide and fur, things like that, uh, as opposed to dogs, which were domesticated as companions and helpers. Nevertheless, goats do this dog-like thing. When they have this unsolvable problem task, they are more likely to look up for, uh, presumably for help, at a human who is looking at them, as opposed to the control of a human that is looking away from them. Hmm. So this is, the, this is kind of the, the impact of the goat herd over, yeah. over the goat. Huh. Now, I don't know exactly what all this adds up to about, you know, how this would affect humans over the years looking at the goats they're familiar with and whether they would imagine that this goat has, is having crafty devilish designs on them or <laughs> is uh, is thinking impure thoughts. Uh, but but I did find it interesting. Yeah, like maybe there is a long underlying realization that the goat thinks and behaves differently when we're looking at it, when, as yeah. opposed to when we're not looking at it, which reminds me of that, you know, ridiculous idea that we, uh, folk tale that we brought up in the last episode about how you can't keep track. The goat's not even there all the time. Sometimes it's there, right. but the rest of the time it's going to hell so that Satan can clean its uh, beard for it. You know what you call that? It's a fission fusion society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, what's your day look like, Carl? Well, 
Uh, I'm gonna eat a bunch of a uh, bunch of grass. Uh, I'm gonna climb some rocks, and then oh, I've got I've got a I've got a 1 p.m. with Satan. Got to get this beard taken care of. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love. You transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as previously mentioned, goats, of course, are really good at figuring out how to make use of new environments. And as a result, uh, as a result of that reality and a result of human domestication of the animals, goats are a common sight all over the world. 
They're uh, one of our oldest domesticated animals, as we uh, discussed in uh, the first episode. Uh, they've traveled long and far with us. And yeah, the goat is especially good at sustaining itself, even in places where nothing like the goat has ever lived. And uh, I want to go to a particular place. And, uh, and part of this is because I, I just physically returned from this place. And so it's, it's on my mind a lot. But I want to, to, to go to the Galapagos Archipelago. Uh, this is a cluster of volcanic islands located 563 miles or 906 kilometers off the coast of Ecuador. It's a place famous for its biodiversity and for the examples of evolution found there uh, as, uh, in various species, many found nowhere else in the world that have evolved to thrive in isolated environments. And while there is some dispute over whether the Inca ever reached the island, we can be certain that Europeans... Uh, discovered the islands uh, in 1535. And outside of Charles Darwin's visit to the island 300 years later, the history of human contact with the island is, uh, has frequently been a bloody one, entailing at times penal colonies, utopian communities, whalers, and pirates. Mm. Sailors infamously made off with many of the, the smaller female Galapagos tortoises uh, which they used uh, to restock their food supplies at these islands. And later, these sailors that were visiting the Galapagos Islands would seed the islands with food species like goats and pigs. So drop off some goats and pigs, knowing that these are hardy creatures that will find out how to survive, that will breed. And then when you drop back by, we just send some, some, of, some sailors ashore and say, hey, go get me some goat meat, go get me some pig meat. Can you bring back 30 to 50 feral hogs? <laughs> uh, and and g given how good these creatures were at, uh, at, at thriving in new environments, and given that these islands had never seen goats or pigs before, yeah, they, they did quite well. And as you can imagine, this sort of willful introduction of invasive species had a, a huge negative impact on the environment. Uh, in addition to feral goats and pigs, also feral cats, feral cattle have uh, long been an issue, along with, of course, rats. Uh, cats are, of course, terrific killers of birds. Pigs will consume hidden eggs, including uh, Galapagos tortoise eggs, guana eggs, etc., uh, and uh, are problems in other parts of the world as well. Uh, but you might well wonder why feral donkeys, and especially feral goats, would be an issue. Like, what ultimately is so destructive about the goat? Mm, yeah. Well, uh, think back to the browsing dietary habits of the goat that we discussed in the first episode. Again, the goat excels at consuming vegetation and ultimately actually outperforms the giant Galapagos tortoise, munching down parts of the plant that would ultimately be inaccessible to the tortoise. And in doing so, they also end up loosening the underlying soil. They also, along with donkeys and cattle, can trample eggs, uh, uh, you know, for the, and for the eggs, as well as just young tortoises, feral pigs, dogs, cats, and black rats can serve as deadly predators. And mm -hmm. so for these reasons, along with, with human hunting, we saw the extinction of the uh, Floriana Island subspecies of the Galapagos tortoise during the mid-19th century. And of course, all of the Galapagos tortoises have, have kind of had a, an uphill uh, battle uh, to, to regain successful numbers. Mm-hmm. Another important thing to keep in mind here, and this, this reminds me of our discussions of the MOA, uh, the, the giant flightless bird in the past, we have to remember that, okay, Galapagos tortoises are notoriously slow. 
but they do move around quite a bit, and aided by a slow digestion, they're able to spread seeds across vast distances. So the Galapagos tortoise isn't just this amazing curiosity to be found on the Galapagos Islands. They're a crucial part of island ecology. They've evolved to thrive uh, within these isolated ecosystems, and those ecosystems have evolved uh, to depend upon them and to uh, and to live alongside them. Uh, there, there are other examples of this as well. Like one in particular, you see these very tall cactus varieties that have evolved to to climb high enough to where they're above uh, the the tortoise's reach. And, and then you'll see, you know, all the the, the fruiting uh, parts of the cactus up there, and they'll be just more like this hard bark on the lower portions of it. They're very tall cacti. Mm. So anyway, we end up with this situation where on on we have we have we have islands here that have lots of goats, and the goats are destructive. The goats are in competition with the animals that we want to to help, that we want to see survive, and have no other place in the world uh, where they can survive, where they can call home. And so this led to goat removal efforts, a war on goats. And there had been prior uh, goat removal efforts on uh, in other islands, but this was the uh, but this was the largest at this point in history. We're getting into the, the 1990s here. So, according to the Galapagos Conservancy, quote, prior to 1997, the largest island with a successful goat eradication was Auckland Island in New Zealand, uh, where only 105 goats occupied a mere 4,000 hectares. The next two largest islands with successful goat eradications were Lanai in Hawaii and San Clemente Island in California. And uh, this, and San Clemente Island, they removed apparently 29,000 goats. Wow. So, yeah, by the late 20th century, some real mover, movements were being made to eradicate feral populations from the Galapagos Islands. This included the 1997 Project Isabella Plan, which aimed to eradicate goats and donkeys from northern Isabella Island, also pigs, goats, and donkeys from Santiago Island, and goats from Pinta Island. And with international funding, they waged a war against the goats and their feral kin. And the results are pretty staggering. By 2004, 18,000 pigs were removed from uh, Santiago Island. The same year, roughly 55,000 goats were eliminated on Isabella. And it's, it's interesting when you start, when you start getting into the, this sort of problem. When you have thousands, tens of thousands of, of goats, how do you get rid of them? How do you round them all up? You, uh, uh, I'm, I'm to understand the, some of this was done uh, uh, via aerial hunting. And some of the, the, the pig removal, I think it still goes on uh, today, I'm to understand, with, uh, with, with hunting efforts. But with the goats, they use Judas goats to help carry this out, some 770 of them. Now, what is a Judas goat, you might ask? Well, these are trained goats, and in these efforts, they're also sterilized goats because you don't, you're not going to solve your goat problem by re- releasing 770 breedable goats into the population. But these are trained goats that uh, in, in that were traditionally used in uh, in previous times to lead sheep to slaughter, but they can also be used to lead feral goats to their destruction. So, in the case of the Galapagos efforts, sterilized goats were used, and uh, yeah, yeah, they were used to help round up many of these goats so that they could be um, eliminated. But I think this whole scenario is it's it's kind of a testament to so many of the properties of the goat that we've discussed: their tenacity, their um, 
uh, their great ability to thrive in an environment. And in this case, they're too good at it. Uh, again, they just out- outperform everything that's already there. Uh, then you have to get rid of them. And how do you how do you uh, wrangle them up? Uh, well, you've got to use goat against goat. You, you've, got to, uh, you've got to enlist traitor goats or Judas goats to go out there and help you lead them in to the kill. I had heard the phrase Judas goat before, but I, I don't think I ever knew what that meant. So it's a, it's a goat that it takes advantage of the, uh, the social herding behaviors of goats by being trained by humans to lead goats where you want them to go, often to a place that's not in the interest of the goats themselves. Right, right. Uh, so that they can be rounded up and, and in this case, uh, eliminated. And, uh, and I believe that they still keep uh, uh, Judas goats around on some of these islands for, for monitoring purposes. I wonder how do you train a goat that other goats really want to follow? Like, what is the most followable type of goat? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't go in deep into like the making of a Judas goat. Like, how does it come together? I mean, it, since you're you're training an animal to betray its its own species, uh, one it, it instantly you can't help but anthropomorphize the scenario when you start thinking of various episodes of The Outer Limits and imagining like aliens brainwashing uh, human captives so that they'll betray their. Uh, 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 the, the human uh, species or something, but uh, I don't think it's quite that complicated. But thank goodness we can do it. I mean, you think of other problem species like the like the rat. To my knowledge, there's no such thing as a Judas rat. Uh, yeah, the, the rats are too clever for that. I suppose you've uh, we've got to resort to in in some cases more basic methods, but also methods that are, are perhaps just incapable of of solving a, a, a large scale rat problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as we reach the end of these three episodes, how do we? How does this change the way we feel about goats? It changes nothing for me. My allegiance <laughs> is to the goat and to the goat alone, as it has always been. <laughs> well, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about all of this. Uh, yeah, did, did did these episodes change the way you think about goats? Yeah, perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, and of course, we. I, I I feel like we we do have listeners who raise goats or have raised goats or have been around goats. Um, I'm almost certain of it, if I'm thinking, if I'm remembering correctly. So if you out there, if you are a goat herd, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what your thoughts are about the way of the goat. Um, certainly if you've ever worked at a petting zoo, if you have any experience with, with goats uh, that, that lines up with anything we've discussed here, uh, write in. Uh, and we'll discuss them on future episodes of Listener Mail. It's also not impossible there'll be another episode concerning goats in the the not-too-distant future because we were just wrapping up uh, our, our work on this, and I got a, a press release from somebody who had like a new study uh, regarding the behavior of goats and rams. Oh. And I was like, yeah. I'm like, oh, man, maybe I'll have to, maybe we'll, we'll have to have them on the show and, uh, and chat with them. So this may not be the end of the goats uh, in the long run, but it is the end of this three-part series. Okie dokie. As a reminder, you can find all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, with listener mail episodes on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we do a little something called Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.